very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Give yourself the gift of truth. After years of extensive research and review, including infiltration into America's fraternal lodge systems, seven years of active membership in the Blue Lodge of Freemasonry, and nine different esoteric orders, exclusive invitational groups like the Masonic Rosicrucians and the Knight Masons, tonight's special guest reveals for the first time the prosecution of a secret war conducted within the ranks of the world's oldest and most powerful secret societies spanning the history of America, humanity, and beyond. Tonight's special guest is Freder X, right now on Veritas. Freder X is an author of both speculative fiction and critical research. He is a lecturer of esoteric philosophies, occult sciences, and mystery traditions, and a former member of nine different esoteric orders, including the Knights Templar, Knights Masons, Order of the Sword of Bunker Hill, Masonic Rosicrucians, and the Ancient Order of Druids. Frederick X is considered a prolific analyst and commentator among his Masonic peers. And to purchase Frederick X's new book, titled The Secret War Inside Freemasonry, and learn about his work, visit his website at middlechambermedia.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from somewhere in the United States, I would like to welcome, for the first time on Veritas, Freighter X. Hello, Freighter X, and welcome. Hello, Mel Fabregas. I'm so glad to be here. It is an honor to speak with you finally. I feel like we kind of dodged each other sort of shadowed each other for a few years there uh, back on old American Freedom Radio Network. And it's, I always had the intention of having a conversation. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Well, here we have it. And I guess we we're both busy trying to get to our own path to the truth. But finally, our, our paths have converged. And I look forward to the next two hours. And the first question I have for you, and I hope you don't take offense because I'm going to ask you this question right from the beginning. A lot of people who are listening to us are listening to all these words, Knight Stampler, the Freemasons, the Order of the Sword of Bunker Hill. A lot of these organizations, some people attach them, link them to the powers that want to be. So those who are listening to us who are saying, why should I trust Freighter X if he belonged to all these organizations? Well, that's a great question, and it's one I get all the time, and it's something that I've had to learn and deal with, you know, the fact that that's fresh and foremost on everyone's mind, you know, and, and I can understand people's apprehension, especially people in this genre of truth-seeking that we have with these shows like yours, like mine, like so many others out there, and the conferences and the websites and the blogs and the forums and everything related to the elite global power elite controlling our world and uh, the idea of a secret society at the core of government and at the core of all levels of 
media and, uh, you know, just basically at, at the wheel of all the controls of our society. So, yeah, how, why trust a guy like me? Well, first of all, let me say that I started out as somebody just as skeptical and just as, a, you know, a concerned and afraid of the, the what the implications I found looking at all the the bad press out there with relation to secret societies and global power elite, dark occulted mystics in our, in our reality and shows like yours. Let me just say for a second that I'm a huge fan of Veritas radio. I've been listening for several years uh, just to let your listeners know I've, I found it to be uh, a great place to get objective uh, understanding and that you unpack some of the most key points and the key issues that are, are foremost in our, in our culture that should be at the forefront of people's awareness right now. And I've drawn many guests from your rosters because you've, you've got there first. So I, I commend you, sir, on your work. Well, thank you. And, uh, yeah. And so having said that, you know, I started out like a, like a, a, just like everybody else, a true seeker. And along the way, I realized that I found a, a sort of a dichotomy or a, a contradiction. There was all this bad press and there was all this dark material related to it. But at the same time, there seemed to be, a whole other side, a, a more honorable, a more moral idea that the greatest achievements of humanity were being presented in a lot of the material that was uh, encoded in these systems, especially the fraternal esoteric orders like Freemasonry, Knights Templar, Knight Masons. Uh, and, but, you know, just to be clear, there are hundreds and hundreds of orders attached to Freemasonry. So just because you find a few good ones doesn't mean there might also be not, you know, also not be a few ill-intentioned one but aside from me finding this dichotomy i also discovered in my own family history while i was deep into this research about trying to understand what was freemason because what happened was is my stepfather when i was about 25 he joined a lodge in my hometown and i was already research and freemasonry but i really stepped it up when he joined because i was concerned i, di- I didn't understand what this thing was and I was trying to understand. So then I found a lot of negative stuff and I kept researching it further. But then at the same time, I found more and more, uh, it would seem like edifying uh, aspects of the enlightenment and the Renaissance attached to all this. But in the middle of all that, I discovered my own family history that, that went back to the ninth century Ireland via Scotland. And I actually was connected to a clan that were the lairds of a area of Scotland. And it turns out from America all the way back to Scotland, my family were all members, initiates of these different orders and secret societies and little, you know, groups that sprung up across the landscape of colonial America and 19th century America. So it seemed as if it was destiny, Mel, to me, because it was like something out of a maybe an H.P. Lovecraft novel or maybe an Anne Rice book or something where you find out all of a sudden that there's this destiny that you, 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 you could only have imagined that you're, you're uh, in this line of people that were all involved in the mysteries and what that was. And for me, I, as a person raised in the West, I had to understand this. And what I realized having been exposed to ceremonial magic systems very young in life, I realized that the Western mystery traditions contained the body of the West, the the Western mystical experience, if you will, that had been repressed and suppressed by the church. And what happened was, is in the Enlightenment, and well, first of all, in the, in the Renaissance, in the time of Michelangelo and Leonardo, uh, a lot of the material that had been repressed, a lot of the Neoplatonists and the ancient lectures and philosophies of uh, all the Greek and Roman greats that had been suppressed by the church had been maintained and preserved by the Muslims and the Moors of the Mediterranean region had transcribed and saved of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and all the uh, other hermeticists like Bruno, you know, that was, uh, and, and so many other Neoplatonists uh, who had really an understanding of consciousness and the universe that was key and essential knowledge for understanding who we are, where we come from, and where we're going. And so without this material, we are at an, a decided disadvantage. And young in my age, probably in my, my teens, I was exposed to 
Zen Buddhism and other Eastern ways of liberation. And what I consider these to be is almost like an inoculant, Mel. They, they can wake up the, the Western mind that has been repressed, that, that, that shamanistic, mystical tradition that was not allowed for the, for the European Western mind to think about during the, the reign of the magisterium and the Inquisition. Well, it got freed up in the, in the Enlightenment when the, when the Moors let the you know, other people look at the material and started getting translated. And then, of course, during the Enlightenment, you had, from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment, you have John Locke and Voltaire, and, and now you have people being allowed to read the Bible. It's translated in King James Version, and now we have people gaining access to the divine on their own and craving a mystical understanding. And, and that's where the fraternal esoteric craft Mason lodges were born, was in that transition from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment. So in my own self, I realized after being exposed to the ways of liberation of the East, that there was something buried, something suppressed and hidden deep within the Western consciousness that was that needed to be awakened and opened up. And, and what I realized now was that I could find that tool or tools in the great toolbox that is the esoteric Western fraternal systems in America, the, they really are forms of ceremonial magic, but not in the spooky witchcraft Hollywood way, something we can talk about more in the show. But I don't know if that helps, but that was why I went into the lodges was to gain understanding of these things. Now, what I found is what I describe in this book that I have called The Secret War Inside Freemasonry, which, by the way, my website is middlechambermedia.com for people who want to go check that out. But uh, this this is what my experiences are and what I research to try to understand the, the origins and purpose of the system of ancient craft masonry, its true name, which we know of as Freemasonry. So why people can, can trust me is, well, number one, I'm no longer a Mason. I, I went through seven years of active membership, and then I deactivated my membership right when I began, well, right before I published this book. And I, I was dissatisfied with my experience in Freemasonry in general, and I, descri I describe it as such. But I, I also talk about the things that brought me into it and, and what, these, what these things are, the ideals I think that I felt I lacked as a person and, and you know, from my own personal experience and that I wanted to gain greater understanding of for my own. So it's kind of, it was kind of a mercenary you know, reason in a way because it was for my own edification. I wanted to improve my education and understanding of all these things. And I wanted to dispel the fear. And you can only do that, I think, by facing and walking through things. Wouldn't you agree? Well, absolutely. Self-edification, I think that's very important. And, and like you, you know, many people demonize Freemasons, they demonize some of these organizations, but like most, most of the people who are part of it, I bet you they're nice working people who want to just learn more and learn the truth that has been hidden from us. Yes, there are some, some groups on the top, and we can get you know around this later when it comes to the 30, 33rd degree and, and, and so on. That, that, that those are, you don't earn them, they're a, you're appointed, if you will, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it's an honorary degree, honorary. which means you do nothing. You do nothing to earn it. Oh, really? Can you go, yeah. for example, I'm thinking of Ron Howard. You probably have heard of how he became a 33rd degree Mason when the movie Apollo, uh, you know, the Apollo movie came along when he was not before in just a matter of months. Is that possible? Can somebody just become a third, 33rd degree Mason honorary without having to go through the first, through this 32nd degrees? Absolutely. The, the inspector general of the Supreme Council can make someone a 33rd on site. He doesn't even have to do a thing. He can be made one on site. He can give it to him for free, or usually people pay for it. That's, that's usually the, the way it goes. And why does that happen? Why does that happen? Why does somebody get a 33rd degree because of the influence that they have in society, maybe? Yeah, there's two, two or three good reasons. Number one, they, they, have, they hold some sort of sway in, in society, and the Supreme Council would like to recruit them so they can use them as a key you know, operative for their sure. agenda. And so if they're rich or if they're famous or, if, you know what I mean, they have some renown or if they have some sort of persuasion, they're political in the group, then they'll be recruited for that purpose. And they'll be offered it oftentimes for free or, again, at a reduced cost, or maybe they'll pay it because they're – you know, they are, they can handle it. They, they can afford it. But it's the, the other reason is a reward. You know, people are offered the 33rd for, for loyal, loyal service. 
because there's a lot of political infighting and backbiting and, and maneuvering and intrigue going on in the administrative levels of Freemasonry that no one is beholden to, and no one's going to talk about it because everybody's sworn to secrecy. Well, I, on the other hand, am no longer sworn to secrecy. I've totally denounced my membership, and so I can speak of these things freely, and I can tell you that this is the, this is the, the secret war inside Freemasonry is, it is an ideological struggle, and right there in the heart of it is the the Supreme Council 33rd. Now, you mentioned Ron Howard being made a, a 33rd degree. This is clearly a reward because, you know, what people may not realize listening to your show, and they can find out more about this by looking at the research of David McGowan, who wrote Wagging the Moon Doggy. His website is centerforanimformedamerica.net, I believe, which uh, he talks about this clearly. And I've, you can find this research out in many other places, too. Read Dark Mission by... Uh, Richard C. Hoagland and uh, oh, I can't remember the other guy. Mike Barrow. Right yeah, Mike Barrow. Okay, that they talk about this too. But the the head, the program director of the of all the Apollo missions during the sixties and seventies, the head guy was a thirty third degree Supreme Council Scottish Rite Freemason, and he was the brother of the top Supreme Commander of the thirty third degree. The top officer, the guy sitting in Albert Pike's chair, was his brother. Okay, the brother, and of course, all the astronauts, the Apollo astronauts who went supposedly to the moon, they were all 32nd and 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemasons, which when you make an oath, you take a, you swear an, a fealty oath. I don't know if you know what that means, but when you swear an oath of fealty, it's an oath of loyalty above and beyond all other oaths and all other pledges. You do that right when you apply, when you apply to become a member of the Scottish Rite. But when you become a 32nd and 33rd degree, and you also, there's a little knight court of, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Knight of the Cross Court of Honor, a C K C C H, And that's a little red cap. So you start out as a black cap in the Scottish Rite. And if you get brought into this little area, it's kind of like the Council of Bishops in the Vatican. You know how there's like the, the regular monsignors and everybody down there in the main and then you got the council of bishops, and then you got the pope, right? Right. right. And, you know, his little council. So that's the way it's like the same pyramid structure within the, the Scottish Rite Supreme Council. So you have the regular 32nd degree princes of the royal secret. They're all black caps, gold striped little bellhop hats. And then you have the Knight of the Cross Court of Honor, which are the red caps, gold stripes. And then you have the white caps, Supreme Council 33rd. By the way, Neil Armstrong. I've heard from two different parties, one that he was a Freemason and another party saying that he was not a Freemason. Which is it? Do you know? Yeah, I don't think that, I think that Neil Armstrong may be a Freemason, but I don't think he's a Scottish right. I think he's one of the only ones that isn't, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But I'll have to research that again because somebody asked me that the other day and I was supposed to look that up. I, uh, I, I think he's the one that's not a, a Scottish right, but he might have been initiated into the Blue Lodge, but he wasn't very active. He was, he's been a pretty reclusive guy. You know? Well, he died, a, but he died, yeah, he died, but Buzz Aldrin, why wasn't he, and I've heard he's a 33rd degree Mason, why wasn't he the, the first man to walk on the moon then? That's a good question. He definitely did an initiatory rite when the sun was rising. He read the right. uh, part of the Master Mason, the, the, the third degree initiatory, right, when you're being raised, the part of the ritual when you're being raised. And it's a quote from Genesis, you know, let there be light. And God said there was light, you know, that, so that, that, that part. And he also brought a little map, a little uh, pocket fold up map of the, the double-headed eagle. And he, they founded Tranquility, Tranquility Lodge number 2000, chartered through the Supreme Council on the moon, supposedly. So the Lunar Lunar Lodge. <laughs> Have you heard of the Sea of Tranquility Lodge? Yeah, isn't it? That's is that connected to? It? I think it's the same same thing, isn't it? Because uh, this one is in Texas, the, the Tranquility oh, Lodge oh. two thousand. Right, and isn't that the? It's in like the place where they the rocket program is, right? Brownsville or something, Texas. I'm not sure exactly, but I'm I'm on their yeah. website right now, and it shows the people yeah. and. Yeah, I think it's connected to the moon. That's why I Sea of Tranquility, right? Exactly. So that's what they established. Exactly. Yeah, they charted it to that. And that's all, I believe, empowered through the Supreme Council, too, the Scottish Rite. So, uh, <laughs> that's so, so why the connection with the moon and the Freemasons? 
Well, okay, so there's a lot of different directions we can go, but the reason why I mentioned the fact that the program director of the Apollo mission was in the Supreme Council and, and that the astronauts were all initiated into the Scottish Rite, or at least in the Freemasonry, is because when you join these orders, the, the first thing you're doing is taking obligations of secrecy. So you're showing that you can keep a secret. And what people don't realize, when you become a member of, of, the, of the third degree of Master Mason, you become a member of Freemasonry, you're eligible now to join hundreds, and some say thousands, of appendant orders to Freemasonry. And, and these are orders that the only predication is that you have to be a Freemason to join. And you, you're usually invited. Like the Order of the Sword of Bunker Hill, that's an invitational order. And the Knight Masons is an invitational order. So you can't join these. You can't say, I want to join. You have to wait to be tapped to join. And, okay, so that gets into some interesting areas, if you think about it, because you have all these little micro groups that might have other intentions than the ones, say, in Freemasonry. And they might bring you into a room and say, well, we're going to initiate you now in the way of the disorder. And, and they watch how you react, right, Mel? And if, they, if you respond and you don't like what's happening, well, then that's as far as you go. But if you're cool with that, and they bring you into another room, maybe, and they might show you something else. And if you are cool with that, maybe you go on to something darker. Sounds that, like that, Scientology that, a little bit. Yeah, in a, in a way, it's that same sort of incremental, you know, concentric circles all overlapping. And, and there's a lot of inner secrecy, a lot of... Uh, there, there's more than just the three degrees. There's basically nine degrees within the ancient craft masonry system in America, though it's often said there's only three. They ignore the truth, and that's part of the secret war inside Freemasonry is this whole, the tactic is this, the secret war ideological tactic that I've mapped out, whether I'm talking about this new book, The Secret War Inside Freemasonry, or the chapter in it titled The Secret War on Human Consciousness. What it is, the playbook is this. We usurp and we take and we counterfeit the knowledge that's in place with knowledge we've contrived that's control-based, that's going to lead you to obedience to authority, because that's what it's all about, is obedience to authority. And I would, I would posit to everyone listening, and I do in my book as well, that the education system of America is obedience to authority-based. And so you, the original question was, why the moon and masonry? Well, there are many people out there who believe we didn't go to the moon, at least not in 1969, now. And so their theories, whether they're true or not, the fact that there is evidence to, to point to a, a doubt of that, and the fact that there are other things that have happened in our civic mythologies, you know, our history. So, so the fact that we have these civic mythologies that, that tell us that, that, you know, like the 9-11 uh, or the JFK assassination or the numerous other false flag events as they've been identified, that all kind of point to the idea that maybe there's something going on that we're not privy to, right? Like maybe there's, these, there is a shadow government that's running a game that we're not aware of that's just beneath the surface. And maybe the conspiracy theory isn't a theory, it's a reality. And so if that's the case, and there's a lot of evidence to point to, the, to, the, to that being the case, then having guys like the Scottish Rite Supreme Council in key positions to be operatives, not only engaged in a, an elaborate hoax, if there was one, a, a lunar landing of 1969, but any other contrary agenda going on in NASA or the CIA or the NSA or any other government contacting group we don't even know about. But what we do know is that the Supreme Council was funding the MK Ultra mind control programs all through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because we know from the work of Dr. Colin Ross in Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, who reviewed yep. 15,000 pages of CIA MK Ultra documents, which showed it's that the Supreme right. Council, yeah, and the Scottish Rite Foundation was funding them. So what's that all about, right, Mel? I mean, where, what, are, what is the Supreme Council Scottish Rite Foundation, which is a charitable organization that's supposed to be, you know, doing things like burn victims for children, uh, you know, hospital funds and uh, material objective funds for uh, lower income people and, and, you know, stuff like general relief and things of this nature. What are they doing funding a government think tank that's doing research for CIA mind control MKUltra program? 
Well, that's why I asked you that question at the beginning that I I know now that you didn't take offense, you know, that these organizations linked to CIA, MKUltra, and who knows what else. But it seems to me that they are gatekeepers of that shadow government in a way. Absolutely. And they're not just gatekeepers at the clearinghouse. Just like with the Nazis, you know, they had those occult orders and the, and the different labor movement orders. These are all clearinghouses from which we will select, we will call our leadership population, our trusted servants, our, you know, our thugs, our, uh, you know, brain, you know, mad minds or mad scientists or whatever. We put them all, we'll sort them into the different places we need them to be in bureaucratic ways and, and we'll have everybody doing, working towards the main goal. Well, what's that main goal? Well, in my book, I, my research, I found that, in fact, there was uh, an agenda, a blueprint, a globalist blueprint that came into play right in the last days of the Civil War, especially. But it began, the seeds were planted at the end of the Revolution, because America was right for the plucking at the end of the Revolution. You had this, this whole nation wide open to be colonized. I mean, can you imagine the real estate, the resources, everything that was just, the potential there was maddening, I'm sure, for the for the profiteer-minded uh, or entrepreneurially-minded person of the day. But these organizations, fraternal orders, were great stepping stones for the common man in America who was having doors open to him. You know, the big dream that had been sold to the American population was this sense of, of an uh, you know, uh, egalitarian brotherhood of man kind of uh, a spirit that, that was being emboldened and, and being uh, seeing manifest in democracy, in American democracy. And part of the, the movement that the, the founding fathers utilized was the very principles, the very symbology, the symbol, sim, symbolic uh, different symbols, emblems, and iconography that was within Masonic, Egyptian, and other occulted and hermetic systems. And they employed that to try to spark that in, in the average citizen, the colonist of the, of the day, with this big, bold adventure, this American experiment that we're all going to participate in. We all have a, a part in. We all have to be an informed part of. Remember, America was a literate nation. It, it, the, the revolution was fought by the pamphleteers in the streets. And anybody who's read Thomas Paine, this is not light reading, ladies and gentlemen. This is a hard read. And this, they sold 600,000 copies to 3 million colonists. So America was an, an intelligent, even the Slave classes, according to John Delgado, were at 75% literate. He claims at the end of the revolution that America was almost 100% literate. And I, I could buy that, considering that Thomas Paine was a bestseller, and that common sense is a hard read. And if 600,000 out of 3 million bought it, and they probably passed it along, that's a big percentage of the people able to read a very difficult document. And they used that to inspire a revolution, and it worked. And they built this nation with it all, you know, and, and it all worked, right? But, but, but did it, really? Because in those early days, you know, we know about revolutions, don't we? We know that when the fighting stops, the real thugs step in. The guys who are going to take over the government. The guys who are going to kill off the ones who are going to be a problem. You know, you see it every time the revolution ends, assassinations follow the formation of an early government. And in our country, we saw some interesting developments in those early days. Like, for example... We saw Alexander Hamilton, known agent of the Montreal Banking Interest, establishing a charter for the Central Bank of America even before the Treaty of Paris was signed in France. So even before hostilities ended between America and England, there was a central bank ready to govern the finances of America. And guess what happened? It did so poorly. It caused such financial ruin in its wake that it was not renewed when its charter came up a few years later. And it, you know, and then... That's what we have as an American history predicated by these different movements that either support or deny a central banking system, which is always, always backed by big business banking and fraternal interest. Because and then I don't mean to interject. I don't mean to interject. Yeah, but after ahead, after the 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 central bank at that time was not renewed, the economy flourished, and it went down again when it came back in 1913, in the 20s and 30s. 
Now, it happened a couple times even before that. And don't forget, Jackson, one of the only presidents in American history to fight the central banks and not get shot in the yeah. head in public, right? Because that's what right. happened. He actually, because he was a general and he had a he had an army, a cavalry around him. So that's how he survived, you know? He fought and shut, he kept the central bank out. And America flourished. The Jacksonian politics was born in that flourishing. And, and he, people loved him. But, you know, he wasn't a great guy either. It was during his tenure we had the Trail of Tears. It was, you know, so he was no humanitarian, let, let's not forget. But he, he did have an, an insight and an understanding of what banking was all about. It was evil. It still is. I mean, I'm sorry to say, I know I have friends that yeah. are bankers. And it's very awkward because, you know, it's like, look, uh, you're really not uh, in a good trade, man. It's like, sure, <laughs> thank so anyways, you know, the bottom line is, is that this is all connected. Masonry, the why the moon, why these elaborate campaigns to uh, mold public opinion and scope public opinion in, in certain ways, that why the political and business intrigues, where the connections are all there. You know, it moved forward from the time of the revolution. It moved forward to the time of, of the Civil War. And in the Civil War, people, they they. they they think, you know, the North against the South, right? And and it was fought about slavery. Well, I mean, my understanding is, yeah, it was fought against about slavery, but not in the way that people think. Because what I understand about my research into this whole thing has, has brought to my attention that the North and the South were business partners. I mean, where do you think all that cotton and tobacco that was being grown in the South was going? It was going to the North, where it was put into the textile mills and created into you know, to, to garments and uh, material that was then sold to Europe. And, and the same with the tobacco it was sent up north and then shipped over to Europe. So they were in business together. And what happened was the north said to the south, look, this plantation plan of this cradle-to-grave support of your working class is not conducive. It's not a good business model. We got a better one. This industrial revolution, the factory worker, this whole thing we got going on, we can just set these people free, let them loose, into the populace and then just choose the ones we want from the population that survives out there and work them until they're useless and then cut them loose. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the model that the yeah. North wanted and the South was invested in the plantation model. So the real conflict occurred. And unfortunately the South, you know, they didn't have the infrastructure to support it because while river boats are great for moving tobacco and cotton, they are really not very good at moving armaments. Trains. Or, yeah. It's, it's and soldiers, whereas trains for the North was uh, the added advantage. So at the end of the war, you have the, the, the robber barons and the, and the railroad barons in bed with the military and the federal government, and all these key positions. You mentioned earlier about the 33rd degree. This honorary degree, because by this time, you know, it's, America has seen Freemasonry for 100 years flourish on its soil. From about, from about 1730. I mean, it was there for longer, but officially, uh, Ben Franklin published Ed Anderson's Constitutions in like 1732, which was the first Masonic publication in America. Ben Franklin published that. So for 100 years plus, they've seen Freemasonry flourish. And the average man on the streets in America saw that as a status symbol. To be a Freemason was meant you were a, a you know, upwardly mobile social climber. And, you know, you were on your way. And so they, that was what it was a goal for people. And, and this was known by the people who ended up in leadership in these fraternal orders. They knew they could dangle these carrots. And the idea of a 33 or 32nd or 33 degree with all the extranumerary um, frills and, and just the, the, the baubles and, and the ribbons and the medals and the seeming honorary, you know, status that you would get from all this was uh, appealing to the average, you know, the average working class guy who was trying to buy into the American dream and was trying to buy into the idea of a manifest destiny. And we can, we can be anything. We can make, a, you know, anything that we could uh, conceive of, we can be. And that for, for a lot of men in America, that meant business and social success, which meant becoming involved in the fraternal orders. And with the Civil War, uh, Mark Twain said that he believed that Sir Walter Scott should be held responsible for the Civil War for writing Ivanhoe, because Ivanhoe, with its myths of chivalry and the imagery of the knights of, of Arthur's round table riding across the land on horseback doing good deeds of chivalry and 
saving the damsels and all this. This is what fueled the the civil war mentality of the South is what he's, he claimed. And we know that in the early, during, and after the civil war, that we saw an ex, uh, exponential increase in membership in the orders of chivalry, like the Knights Templar, the Knights of the, the, uh, the Knights of the Golden Circle, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the Knights of the uh, Red Cross, and the Knights of Malta. These are all different orders connected to Freemasonry in America. And why? Because what if you, if, you know, most men served in the Civil War in America if you were able-bodied. So you had that wanting to relive that whole pageantry because it was very paramilitary and still is paramilitary oriented. Today, the Knights Templar wear the uniform of the, the Civil War time era. Those are the, the military uniform is a Civil War-like era uniform and they wear them and they have uh, military drills and paramilitary exercises so you're engaging in this paramilitary activity well if you were a guy who wasn't able to serve this is a way for you to connect with that other brother who was a veteran you know and you could all get in uniform and you all play soldier and then march around and a lot of a lot of men got off on that and they still do they they're very you know there's a lot of military military and former military masonic members who still want to engage in that kind of activity. And this is a perfect way to live that out and live out the glory years, even when you become elderly. So that's a big but part see, of it. I'm glad we're talking because, especially the, the fact that there's a war within Freemasonry, because there's a lot of confusion out there, especially the people who are not involved, like me or, and our listeners maybe. When we think of Freemasonry, we think of the time when in Europe, they were the ones who built those cathedrals. And they obviously have some architectural knowledge that was passed to them from somewhere. Who knows? Maybe they even knew how to, the Egyptians built the pyramids. But something happened in the middle. It was almost hijacked. And I wonder if this is where you say that there's a war within Freemasonry. Did something happen along the way? For example, 1738, the Catholic Church, the Pope condemned Freemasonry and they stopped building the the, the, uh, cathedrals. And also people confuse Freemasonry with religion just because it has its own rituals, but they don't have any priests, no ministers, no rabbis, uh, no system of clergy of any sort, but everybody's their own thinker, which is a positive thing in my opinion. Yeah, I think that there was a union of the underground hermetic schools and the stonemason lodges that were left over in England and Great Britain from the Roman occupation, the Roman Commissine guilds. And these were the early cathedral builders. And in in the 16th century, I would say, as a just a ballpark figure, a new form of mysticism was born. What would be called now, not at the time, but what we could call like a Protestant mysticism. Because remember, when King Henry threw the church out of England, he took over as the head of the Church of England and opened the doors. And, and then, of course, Elizabeth and James after that, after him, they just further opened the doors of, of uh, mysticism, of man's access to the divine through the church. They removed a whole class of priesthood and a, and a whole class of uh, ecclesiastic authority and placed it all in the hands of the monarchy. And when they did that, it, it was a, such a, a drastic ideological shift. That's, that could be said to be the birth of this secret war, because in that moment, the libertine notion that man could grasp his own destiny, that he could take his evolution into his hands, that he could approach his creator and, and you know, commission or petition him for knowledge and for understanding and maybe even power. This was radical thinking, you know, for this was terribly radical thinking. And that's why the church has always found these fraternal orders to be a threat. But but it was in this. This is the climate. It was in this climate that that man began to seek ways to, you know, because before this time, when the church was in charge, you just joined an order. You became a Benedictine or a Dominican or a Franciscan or, or a Knight Templar or a Knight of Malta or a Knight of John, a Knight St. John. One of those things, the, the, one of those orders was how you accessed the mystical and, in, 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 you know, you became a monk or a, or a friar or one of, of such those orders. But, but now that was gone. And now the average man can read the Bible. Now the average man can understand what God's plan is for him. Now the average man can commission God and ask for his will to be done as well, you know, and could turn to God and say, please, you know, pray to him and, and make contact and, and, gr- and gain greater understanding of God's will for him. And this was at the core of all this. 
And so, yeah, there were the guilds, the, 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 the cathedral builders were there. And then the hermetic orders, the underground orders that had been suppressed by the Inquisition and by, you know, the magisterium, because you weren't allowed to look at this material. And if you did, they would kill you and kill your family. You know, so that's what that's why it became important to keep this secret at first. The orders of secrecy were designed to protect, make a, a place, you know, to pre- not only preserve and transmit the universal knowledge, with, which, you know, with the, the shifting of the ebb and flow of comp- consciousness in human history, we go through periods of time where there's like the dark ages where people aren't learning stuff. They're not interested in learning. And so there are the few who like the cloistered orders of the monks that well, there's a book called how the Irish saved civilization by Thomas Cahill, which talks about how the monks preserved that, that same kind of stuff that the Moors had preserved that the rest of uh, Christendom at the time was denouncing as heretical. So if they hadn't saved that stuff and kept it cloistered up in their little scriptoriums in the, out in the middle of Scotland and, uh, you know, France and stuff and Ireland, then there would be none of that knowledge would have been saved, you know, and it's important stuff. Well, that's the same thing all through history. We have times in which there's an ebb and flow. And during those times, these orders are, are supposed to protect the knowledge from being misused or exploited, though often we know more than likely, uh, more, more than not, the, the, the knowledge is controlled by social elites that take control of these orders. That's what is happens. There a link between, is there a link between the Freemasons and the, the former Gnostics? Oh, absolutely. The traditions are clearly there. And this is another thing. The Gnostics were just as radical and threatening to the church authorities of their time because the Gnostics knew a whole different version of the gospel than what the church in Rome, you know, eventually, but first in Jerusalem, then eventually in Rome, was trying to put. Well, actually, let me let me rephrase that. You know, first it was in Antioch where they were first called Christians. But there was there were two teachings going on there. And I believe that the way the true way that we would attribute to the one we know of as Jesus was more Gnostic than any other. And and the way of the church, the authority, the Catholic, the universal church, the orthodox or straight view that was put forth to the people was the way of Paul. And he had a different doctrine. It was not the same doctrine as the gospel. And Paul never met Jesus, according to the story. He had, it was after the time on Damascus that he met him in a glorified form. But his version of the gospel was not well received by the leadership of, of his day. As a matter of fact, the, the, uh, the, they wanted to kill him. And so the, the, the Gnostics were killed for just the same reason, because the Gnostics, they understood that, that there was a uh, transplanting going on, just like in Freemasonry, they were alive to see this usurpation of the way and the counterfeit replacement of a counterfeit version Paul's version. If you look at the writings of Paul in the scriptures, you see a distinct difference between Paul's teachings and Jesus's teachings. And you look at the Gospels as one teaching, and you look at the letters of Paul as another. You can see, and then a, a great writer who did the, an amazing exposition on this, a guy named Holger Kirsten, a German writer who wrote a book called The Jesus Conspiracy. He also wrote another book called Jesus Lived in Italy. And he, taught, he breaks down every scriptural reference of Paul's to show how lost lived. you there for about seven seconds. Please repeat that. Uh, the great book to read that'll talk about the distinctions between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul is a book by a guy named Holger Kirsten, who's a German writer who wrote a, a, one book's called the, the Jesus Conspiracy, and the other one's called Jesus Lived in India. And he breaks down the scriptural references which show the differences between the two teachings. And so, the, why do I bring those up? Because they're a good example of the differences, you know, the, the, the one that the Gnostic way of understanding was the authentic original way, and then the teaching was the, the, the supplanting of it. And so in Masonry, the true Masonic teaching, the early version, what I would call that Protestant uh, mysticism, was basically a, a, a system of self-help, a spiritual system designed for the Renaissance and Enlightenment era Mason to uh, access the divine. To step into the cosmos of the circuit, uh, the, the, the the circuitry of the cosmos, and to access the the, the buttons and wheels to uh, you know unfold and unlock the secrets of the universe as he understood them. Over the temple of Delphi were the words of Thales, which said, "Know thyself, and you will unlock the secrets of the universe." I'm paraphrasing, but that was those are powerful words. And so I am a 
I am in firm belief of that, that in order for us to understand the greater mysteries of the universe, we must understand the lesser mysteries of ourselves. And so what, what I found or what I sought by going into the lodges was that that very thing, the tools to do that. And although they are contained there, I would propose to everyone listening that they are in a dormant state and that they have been deactivated from within by the leadership, which would derail and reemphasize it, which would reorient the emphasis of Freemasonry away from this mysticism, uh, self-improvement, and towards an authority-driven uh basically first and foremost an obedience program but then secondly uh, a public relations program with you know a charity fueled public relations program which serves a multitude of purposes from the let me go in, in let me go in chronological order for a moment when did you start the obsession with freemasonry when did it begin and why for me it was uh around it was in the mid 90s early to mid 90s and it was just i think uh, there was a synchronous uh, collective experience for a lot of people at that time. And I, I too felt it. And then my father joined a lodge and that just sparked further from there moving forward. So I'd say the mid nineties. And, and the then, reason for that was because? Well, like I said, my father joined the lodge, which really sparked an interest. But I think that I was also being kind of, I, I would propose, and I talk about this in my book, that the social media out there at the time in the 90s, you know, television, radio, movies, they, they, there was already an implanting of uh, Masonic imagery and Egyptian iconography for a deliberate reason that we can get into. That was that was a deliberate purpose. That that's why the Scottish Rite was funding the, uh, the CIA mind control experiments because there was a there was an agenda here. And what it what it all boils down to was a need to captivate the general public to kind of corral the awareness of, of, of America away from where it was headed naturally and towards a, a preconceived destination, a cul-de-sac, if you will. And, 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 th and I think it worked. And the culmination of this was the 9-11 uh, ritual that occurred, you know. It was well, the, speaking of 9-11, look at all the subliminal messages in all the movies prior to 9-11. Take The Matrix, the first Matrix movie. You probably know this, the passport, Neon's passport, the expiration date is 9-11-01. Absolutely, and there's a multitude of other examples, and that just supports the claim. See, what happened was, is there was an institute, and I'm pretty sure it still exists, the SRI Institute, which was a center for the study of social policy in America. And they were contracted by the government in the late 60s to do a report. And they issued this report, and anybody can find this report. It's a PDF document. It's free to download online. It's called Changing Images of Man. And it was a 1974 government report put out by this SRI, Center for, for the Study of uh, Social Policy in America, and in this document, they said that America was headed for a collective awakening as a people, as a society, that it would culminate with the new thought paradigms and new age movements all through the 70s and 80s and 90s. And then it would eventually culminate in this mass awakening sometime around 2000 or 2001. This is all in this document for anybody to check out. And it was written in 1974. And they, they reported to the government on this. And what they said was it was going to cause great problems. There would be a, a serious market dip. And there would be a, a crisis of confidence in all levels of authority and social uh, institutions like the churches and the social organizations. And, and there would be a, a tremendous upheaval in every walk of life. And that there would be America's uh, people would just generally shrug off the the control paradigm that's been in place all along and would uh, be unmanageable. And so what the report suggested was we have to employ certain techniques to corral the awareness, to lead America back towards the goal, which is, you know, free market, democratic, uh, libertine uh, notions of uh, manifest destiny. <laughs> and so the way that they suggested in the, in the back of this report, it was a couple hundred page document. And in back in like 187 page appendix number two or whatever, it was almost as an uh, afterthought to the whole thing. They suggested Masonic symbolism and Egyptian iconography would be tremendously useful to corral and otherwise, uh, you know, entrain or captivate American awareness 
and consciousness. And the reason was, is for the very reason I said before, how the founding fathers had used Masonic imagery and Egyptian iconography to invoke that sense of this human potential, the idea of the time of of human excellence when the Egyptians built the pyramids and when the, you know, the time of the rise of Sumer and all of the wonders of the world, they wanted America to be viewed that way as another wonder of the world. And that's why they built these huge monuments in D.C. and their houses are all big and beautiful and extravagant because they wanted to invoke this feeling of expansive, massive undertaking in everyone that beheld these beauties. And they used it. The obelisk. Yeah, the obelisk, the porticles, the archways, the pillars, all of that. It goes back to ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and ancient Rome. It gives us the feeling of a, we're a part of this great American, this great human endeavor going back all the way to the beginning of civilization. And so it worked. It really did. And it planted seeds in all of us. We can feel our skin crawl when we honestly think about these things. But you know, well, look at the Capitol, the statue on top of the Capitol. What is it? Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war. Yeah, and there it is. Same thing, evoking that powerful imagery. And so what did we? What they said was, we can keep using this. And that, Mel, is what I would propose, why you see Masonic symbolism all through the media, all through the movies and TV and music and everywhere you look, and magazines, and everywhere you look, the liberal messaging, reinforcing the, the square and the compasses and the all-seeing eye and all that stuff. It's because it's, it's been, it's, they're utilizing. They bought the, they bought the report. He said, okay, let's do this. And why is it just a coincidence, ladies and gentlemen, that 2000 to 2001 was when they said the Great Awakening was going to happen? And what happened in 2000? I mean, what happened? They hacked it. Yeah. They hacked it. See, if you don't mind, let me read this part of your book because I'm thinking of what you're saying. And I think the... Ever since the internet came along, well, 70s, 80s, DARPA started it all. And then at one point in time in the past... I think there was a universal language, universal religion, where the entire planet was connected. Maybe the pyramids was used for that reason. And something happened, perhaps a cataclysm over 10,000, 12,000 years ago that disconnected everything. But allow me to read this from your book. Quote, we are clearly living in the aftermath of a species-wide hijacking of human consciousness. Numerous sources conclude that some 10 to 13,000 years ago, one or more earth-shattering catastrophes effectively knocked humanity's collective network of, of, of consciousness, as well as individual consciousness, offline. This created, in its in effect, species-wide post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, if you will. In such a weakened state, the human species was ripe for exploitation, enter a pathogen, a mind virus, infestation of indeterminate source, an inner-outer species predator that, quote-unquote, grokked, the terra incognita of the human mindscape. This collective disorder diverted enough of humanity from a tribal hunter-gatherer subsistence lifestyle to a city-state agricultural system with authority, justified and reinforced by a select priesthood chosen for obedience and skill, perpetuating the ruling paradigm. The collective species paradigm was brought back online gradually under a veritable quote-unquote safe mode, a firewalled version of reality not unlike the Chinese model of the internet, a deliberately narrowed bandwidth of frequency that can easily be manipulated, unquote. I hate to read quotes from books, but I needed to read this because I think the internet is today's version of safe mode of universal controlled consciousness. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. The meme-driven consensus, the oversimplification of knowledge and understanding of reality, it's maddening, Mel. I completely agree with you. That's exactly, and they subtly just slipped it in, and everybody just bought into it. Everybody's trying to Kool-Aid. We're all, you know, Facebook is such a, a powerful means of communication in our society, but let us not forget the 800 million images they collected with the Facebook database helped them to to help them to capture wanted felons, even if you're not guilty, even if you're falsely accused, you walk through like the Super Bowl gate and the facial biometric scan, like something out of a Philip K. Dick movie, right? They scan your face and they <laughs> data mining. Up. Yeah, they're data mining and they're using Facebook to bust people, you know, or want, I think they caught like, they captured like 19 wanted felons at the last Super Bowl using the Facebook 800 million picture database, you know? So there you go. And they, you know, they can run memes all day long. I, I constantly ask people now, and I encourage everyone out there, 
to do the research and to challenge people when they say, oh, I heard the other day such and such. Where'd you hear that? Oh, was it a meme on Facebook? Did you actually cross-reference that? Did you really figure out if that was true or not? Because you're spreading misinformation if you didn't. And we do it all the time. And if the thing with the thing with our consciousness is we attach feelings to memories. So if we if something crosses our path of awareness in a day and we just give it an idle, just a glance, it is filed as a memory and it has an emotion attached to it. And so later on, if somebody else says that same meme or piece of misinformation, as the case may be, we recall it. And now it's doubly reinforced because somebody else is suggesting it too. It goes with the emotion we attached to it when we filed it as a memory, and it becomes even more real. And pretty soon, that's a fact. It's become a fact of reality, even though it was all made up as a meme to begin with. I always tell the story how I grew up a Catholic, Catholic school over, you know, 20 years of that. And you always were told not to question. And this is the part that I could never, never understand because I had the, the fundamental questions always bothering me. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And none of my teachers could answer the questions and they would tell me the answers in the book. And if you cannot find it, is because some truth are not meant to be found. And I could never understand that. But you started all of this, the research, from a suspicious slant, correct? Yes. Yes, I did. Was it what you expected when you joined? Yeah. Um, well, that's it's a two-part answer to that question. But first, let me just say that I, too, was raised a Catholic. I, I didn't go to Catholic school but I went to a school where you had to go to church and you had to pick a church and they bust you to church and we were bust to the Catholic church. And my father was a Catholic and my mother became a Catholic when she married him. And so uh, all of my cousins and uncles and aunts were all Catholic and Irish Catholic. But the point is, is that I too was raised that don't question. And of course I did question. And I was also as a good Catholic, we were raised not even to read the Bible. Like we never, we never read the Bible. I didn't even realize the stories that were in the Bible, that were the Bible stories, because I'd never read it until I went to a Protestant church. And I sat down with Protestants who had, were well-read in the Bible. And they're like, and I'm like, well, I'm a Catholic, almost as if to say to them, and I'm more Christian than you are, right. because, because I'm Catholic. You're just like some splinter group or whatever, right? Renegades. <laughs> yeah, renegades. Yeah. Yeah, heretics, really, you know? But but they knew more about this Bible, and then I re- so in the end, that don't question anything and just do what the Father says, that didn't work well because it made me doubt now. So I, I wow, they've been pulling the wool over my eyes all along. And that was that same sort of suspicion when I approached Freemasonry. It was like, I doubt it because I already suspected the authorities. I recognized Freemasonry as one of the authorities of the powers that shouldn't be in my teenage years, I was in the punk rock music and, you know, anti-social mentality like that. And so I saw the, you know, I was against the system and, the, the, you know, I saw the, the this is part of it. But at the same time, when I, when I approached Freemasonry, I was much older, you know, I was 37 years old. At that point, I had a wife and children and I'm trying to find myself in a community and trying to be like a productive member of society and joining Freemasonry seem like a way to plug back into the community because of all those well-intentioned Masons you spoke of, those guys that really are community builders, that fill up every lodge across America, that have the best intentions, that are servants to their community, that, that are church-going fathers and husbands and, and are business and successful business people that want nothing but for everybody to prosper. And so I wanted to plug into that same mentality because I'd already lived the life of rebellion and, and, you know, what you could consider dissipation from the business-minded sense. And, and, and I didn't want to, I wanted to get more towards the productive, what I saw as socially productive, because I considered myself uh, in need of that as a father to try to instill some sort of moral compass. And so that's what I thought when I went in there. And I was disappointed now because what I found was that same sort of good old boy cronyism, nepotism, favoritism, and corruption that's in every level of our society. And it was the most disappointing aspect of it was that it was couched in such these high ideals and moral ideas, you know, that, that uh, I'm moving here. I hope I don't screw up the, <laughs> the broadcast, but I was, I was, uh, it, it really was disappointing to find that because you go in from my perspective, I went into the lodge looking for a place to review material and without fear of judgment from others and not feeling as if you're going to be preyed upon 
by your fellows, how you often feel in our society. Freemason to me represented a neutral ground where brothers could meet each other, quote unquote, on the square, which meant even, you know, the Freemasons wear white gloves now. You see them with the white gloves on. That's an equalizer, you see, because from banker to stonemason, you put white gloves on, you can't tell your profession, you're all equal. And they stand side by side in the lodge together. So it was that real egalitarian sense of brotherhood. And that was a powerful and still is a powerful motivator. And I feel a great disappointment that it didn't work out because I wanted it to be all that it was supposed to be. And, and then aside from that, that's just the practical idea that the operational, but the spiritual and esoteric ideas that I wanted to gain greater understanding and insight that I was promised more light. We ask as initiates into Freemasonry, when they ask you, what do you seek? You seek more light. That's what you seek. And so, you know, lux is light, right? And so the fiat lux means more light, but they, they, they never really provide the light. They always sort of defer it. And even at the end of the three degrees, when you're told you're a master Mason, Mel, you're given a substitute word. If that doesn't tell you that there's something going on here, <laughs> I don't know what is. Because well, then hold they, it right there, yeah. because we want to we take this on in, in the segment two. We have to break the segments. Sure. But what you're saying is that it's almost like they're, they're dangling a carrot in front of you, almost, as I said before, like Scientology, or a lot of these places that, that want to come in, just come in. And first step, second level, third level, pay for it. And only those people with real, real power are the ones who go behind the scenes, 33rd degree Masons. Those are the ones. But, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to ask you this, and we'll get your answer on the other side. After one applies to become a member of a Masonic Lodge, what is the due diligence process they conduct before they accept you? But we'll get there on the other side. And I'm glad you corrected me on the website, your website, and where people can buy your book. Where can people buy the book, and what's your website again? The book can be purchased on the normal places, Amazon uh, and everywhere else, but it's also on our website, which we ask people to, to, to get the most support for our endeavor. They can go to middlechambermedia.com and purchase the book with the PayPal button there. And it's uh, <clears throat> you know inside and outside of the U.S., there's two rates for shipping, but uh, the, the book is only $15.00. So it's a really, really inexpensive way of gaining unbelievable access and understanding, not only to the whole system and origins of Freemasonry, but clear understanding of this secret war inside Freemasonry as I discovered it. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with my friend Freighter X, finally on the show. We've known each other, off each other for years, but now we're here together. Our path can't converge, and we're discussing a very, very interesting topic that fascinates me, and I want to get to the bottom of it. I also want to know the difference between illuminated and illuminati. So a lot of people think it's the same. It's not. But all of this when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy!
This is Freeman, and you're listening to Veritas.